1: I want
2: you to get mad. Always Record, episode 122. Today's Always Record is a continuation of a conversation that began on 42 Minutes, episode 188, hosted by Douglas Bowles and Will Morgan, with a roundtable consisting of Jason Horsley, Andros Jones, Bill Klaus, David Plate, and Patrick Savek. Since Always Record is the second part of this crossover special with 42 minutes, you'll likely want to listen to that first. Or, hey, if you're into the whole non-linear thing, listen in any order you like. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad! Thank you, guys. That was fun. Yeah,
3: once
4: again, how fucking short these shows are. I'm sorry, guys, for talking so much. i did. I like, really like 42 minutes. Yeah, I mean, why do you talk so fucking much? I know dude, I'm sorry. I can't help it. And, uh, and, but you know what though, it's gonna be closer to 42 minutes. Because oh my I gosh, David, to... the goat comment the other day on the home the court with Jason Pereira. Cracked me actually What goat? comment? Oh, you're God. like,
3: that is not how it happened. The goat got on him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, um, gentlemen. It has been a pleasure. I'm out. Please continue and have a wonderful day. Not
5: always day. performing.
3: What?
6: We're oh, yeah, we work. are.
3: Will's got to go to work.
2: Whoa, I'm leaving.
3: Look, fuck man.
6: That Will Morgan. You're calling him sick. <laughs> You're calling him
4: sick today. What dude. would That's Don
6: gorgeous.
2: Draper do?
5: Don Draper would go to work. So,
2: no, he would disappear for a few days.
5: He'd show up when he wants to.
3: He would take a nap on his couch with some bourbon.
5: Hmm. All right, the champions.
7: Hey, Wait, Will, so- watch for the horse themes in the show.
2: Watch for the horse. Well, the horse, the whole thing with her and riding horses is pretty prevalent. And yeah. there's horses like in the backgrounds and stuff. But to me, so horses kind of symbolize sexual morality. So there's this whole thing on what she's dealing with as far as like the promiscuity of her husband. And she doesn't even know. Like it's so weird because she has no idea who he is. She's totally clueless. And like what I what I, he he says that to Peggy Olson at one time. He was like, "You will be shocked at how how much it didn't happen." And uh, he basically molds Peggy to be a smaller version of him. That's why it's cool that her name is you know Peggy Olson, like Johnny Olson or. Jimmy Olsen Jimmy Olsen from su- Super you know Superman comic books it's like there's this there's this whole thing going on there where she's molded from day one to think like Draper and then there's the the period where she actually um that same episode actually where she she becomes Draper's equal in a way and then she slowly moved up the ranks once freddie has gone and she even has a kid with you know Draper's arch nemesis, Peter Campbell, right, right off the bat, the first fucking season. It's crazy.
7: Right, right. But I'm well,
2: out, gentlemen. But Vara then, Kandias. okay,
3: so yeah, you just opened a can of worms. It's great. Um,
2: Peace. I'm Jason was talking
3: about the idea of the mother. Uh, and Peggy Olson is this mother on some level because she has a child that she doesn't keep.
4: Oh, dude, totally. Uh, yeah, there's. I felt like one of the most important lines in the entire show, at least for me, and this probably might sound weird to you guys, is when um, was it? Uh, there's the discussion about bringing the kid to go see *Planet of the Apes*, and the mother's upset. And uh, I'm sorry, it's been too long. I'm, I'm, I always forget this guy's name: P- Price, P- P- Pierce, what Roger, Roger, what? i just it's
7: Sterling. Kind of,
4: yeah, Roger Sterling. Okay, so Roger Sterling says, oh, well, my mom brought me to go see The Gollum when I was a kid. And, like, I mean, Patrick, I'm sure you can appreciate this, and I don't hmm. know, uh, you guys know me. Uh, what the fuck? I'm watching this movie, and I'm already tripping out over the whole Moonchild Gollum thing and relating it to Rosemary's Baby for days, and just, I'm seeing all this stuff. I mean, I, I you watch an episode, it's so long, I mean, I can't. I don't have enough notes here to show all the places where I was tripping out on that. But then that was like the direct sink wink for me. I was like, oh, really? Because I relate to the whole 60s as creating a golem. Like, I don't look at a golem as embodied necessarily. I see um, that spreading the philosophy of Thelema and all of that. And I connect it to the nuclear bomb. And I have this whole trip out on it. It's in my sync book chapter. But, like, I was looking for that. I guess you could argue that if you're looking for something, you know, whatever. But of all the things that he could say, because the people who did the Gollum did Metropolis, and Metropolis is about this Scarlet Woman, and it's got this whole, and about Babel, and that's the theme of the whole fucking deal. And, like, right before, in the 1920s, before Metropolis came out, these people produced the Gollum, and it's all the whole special effects crew and all of that. Do you guys, did you know that? I mean, I don't...
5: (laughs) <laughs> so, but actually, this is the this is some a question that I have that I'm really curious about Mad Men, and sort of goes to what you were just saying about if you're looking for it. I'm curious: are there things that you expected to happen or see based at like? So, we've been having all these sync theories about this for since you know probably season two or three. We've been having these. This we've been hovering around this conversation. I know I've almost had it with you, Dave, several times, and David, and uh, and I think we Bill as well. Like with all of you, we've had these uh, these conversations about uh, Mad Men and what the sinks are that are going on there. And I know that there are some things that I thought would show up that didn't, which in a way I always think of as kind of a, a good sink test. Like if everything you expect to see shows up, You're looking in a mirror. You're not, there's no way that you're connected to the, unless you have a psych, a total psychic connection with the artist and you're completely on the same wavelength. So I'm just kind of curious, were there things you expected him to explore or go to that he didn't?
1: I
6: thought that that I would have an explicit psychedelic experience, uh, chemical wise, uh, endemic to the culture and the time. Uh, clearly, yeah. he goes
1: on a trip, and he goes his on on his own odyssey, so, I mean, it's represented, but I thought it would be explicit. Um, he tokes a few reefers every now and then, but it doesn't really seem to uh, uh, affect him too radically, so that's why I think he never makes the jump uh, to any harder stuff, because he kind of knows what that is. So, I like that that curveball, like, I'm glad that that didn't happen. If it would have happened, I think I wouldn't have liked the show, so...
5: Well Roger was the one who got to do that. We got Right, to, we get
1: our fix. We get to see it but it's in a way that we didn't expect.
5: Yeah, I agree. I love that.
1: Because <laughs> Sterling kind of stays the same. He that just he rolls with the punches on that shit. I mean, he goes as out there as you can, but he he doesn't really get uh swallowed up by the experience. He just sort of puts it on the shelf and says, oh, I can use that whenever I need to. And then well, he goes right back
4: into the pattern. I mean, that's the thing. He has this huge break from the pattern, all these realizations and everything, and then it's like despite all of his revelations or whatever, that's such an expansive experience, it's it's true to what often happens where you just go right back into the old swing of things with a little something extra in there for Daddy simultaneously.
1: My one last thing about uh, the LSD thing is uh, a friend of mine pointed this out, and I think it was a really astute observation. Um, Sterling, uh, so... When they get sold to McCann Erickson, they mistake Peggy for a secretary, and she's staying in the abandoned building while everyone moves over to McCann Erickson, right? So there's this sort of girl falling in this wasteland, right? And there's a scene where Sterling is there, and he's looking for booze, right?
5: Oh, yeah. will you drink vermouth.
1: Will you drink vermouth, right? (laughs) And I think that Sterling is looking for any way to slip her some of the LSD he has, because he realizes... She's a little girl in a big man's world, and she needs to see some shit. So it's a father-daughter. It's like, I'm going to share my wisdom with you. And so she stays with her. He's a sitter. He stays with her the whole time, and she just roller skates around that room. And then the next shot you see is her in the sunglasses entering McCann Erickson like a badass because she figured out exactly what she was going into. So that wasn't explicit, but I think that that's 100% uh, accurate in that. It's a father-daughter passing the torch of wisdom, and he
4: dosed her. I think it's a beautiful... You uh, think scene. he dosed her? Well, wow, I did not catch that. Thank you, Bill.
5: <laughs> <laughs> See, that's so funny, because I, I, I totally get that. And at the same time, I think that the initiation is different. It's more like... you. She used to be intimidated by this guy... And he's kind of pathetic and lonely. I mean, that line I've been thinking about that line. Would you drink vermouth? <laughs> because <laughs> as a as a bartender, that's that's just hilarious. That's that's some pitiful alcoholic behavior. Mm-hmm. And so and sh- so she's there, and she is clearly she is not she's not just his equal. She's she's the future, and he is not. And so it. I get the father-daughter thing, but it felt much more like that moment when you see your father not as this, you know, terrifying, perfect, you know, being, Superman, but you see him as an old drunk who's lonely and just wants, you know, and has no one to talk to. And you're the future.
6: But just one little mathematical point. If all they had was a bottle of vermouth, there's no way she would have gotten that drunk to be in that kind of state where she's roller skating blissfully off on another planet. So just mathematically, they didn't have enough alcohol for her to get that whacked out. Uh, there was something, well, I think, in her cup.
5: So, yeah, I'll, so I'll give you, <laughs> <a> meta- <laughs> well, you that metaphorically that's the case. But, you know. It's really
6: tasty if you allow yourself to really go with it. But, uh,
5: yeah, it might be. Oh, true. yeah. <sighs> hmm.
4: Interesting.
3: So does Dawn explicitly create that Coke ad? That's explicitly what happens.
5: I think that's what... I mean, there's... if I
6: thought
3: yeah, Peggy I did mean, it
5: at first. Well, I thought that it would be really interesting. I think what the, the show that I'd love to see them do right now is just, like, the making of the Coke ad. Do it as a movie. The making of that Coke ad, where Joan is running the... <laughs> video is running the the production company that does it it's actually pretty good man and they bring in everyone to like that would be so fucking awesome right we're just so hungry for it but i don't think they'll give it to us but it would be amazing um because they could all have their roles in it let's wait let's talk about some of these other characters who are like we're focusing a lot on the, the main guys and the main women, but there are all these really interesting other characters, like Lane, the the suicidal Englishman. Um, or who's the one who's the author who gets shot in the face? Ken Cosgrove. Ken Cosgrove is like my favorite character. I think he might be my fa- one of my favorite characters in the show. Do um, you guys have any thoughts about any of these other... Um,
6: well, the uh, the Brit guy, uh, Lane, oh, yeah. is like is like the Brit who fell to Earth or who fell to America. He's clearly a fallen kind of guy. He he didn't fit in in his home country, and he moves to America, and then he c- kills himself. Like you're talking about about a guy tumbling down the stairs, um, seemingly had everything in the world to be happy, and and you would have expected. Uh, I imagine Don Draper thankful for Lane in his life because Draper would have killed himself had he not seen Lane do it first
5: hmm. yeah
6: he, he he realized I'm not buying that product I'm not going
5: that way At I mean I the English it. really get fucked in this series the one guy gets his <laughs> leg chopped right. off that whole company like they, they they tangle with America and just get hosed and then they don't come back right we don't like well that brings us Charlie to Patrick's
4: Lane's contribution because Patrick has this whole uh, – you guys, you know, it's not in the kitchen sink. There's a strawberry fields uh, – tell us about your deal, Patrick, if you could. Because holy cow.
7: Hold Patrick. on, there's an airplane flying over my house right now, and I can't hear anything. Oh, my God. That's so ironic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> as,
4: as I'm telling you guys this, I'm thinking about the thing. with. So I was watching Mad Men, and I see 666 out the window. And I'm with Amy, and I'm like, it fucking says six, six She's like, what? And I'm like, no. And we freeze frame it, you know. I'm looking, at it, I'm like, this fucking six 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 out the window on this building across the way. And right after that, you know, um, uh, Joan picks up a plane off of what looks like a miniature version of the Freedom Tower and throws it across the room. And what does she say?
7: Here's a surprise.
4: Here's a surprise. And it's like, um, you know, you're like, oh, what the fuck? She just took the plane off the anti-prism in front of the 666 fucking Sun Square building across the street. And it was like this whole uh, weird thing. But, like, you, you're speaking to the English. I just want to point out that, like, Patrick has done all this work. There's, like, these enormous threads on, on another um, – what's the group called? Um, Strawberry Fields. That's it? Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a Paul is Dead uh, thing that, um, you know – Patrick has, has contributed to. And, uh, man, it's just, there's so much there. I don't know if you could do,
7: you know, much of it justice here, Patrick, but Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know. Um, there's definitely a lot of influences in that show from, you know, Jack Kerouac to the Godfather Kubrick. But I think there's also weavings interweavings of, um, like, we've kind of touched on Babylon working motifs and other conspiracies like Moon Landing and 9-11. And there's, there certainly seems to be a lot of um, Beatles motifs in there. Like, they kind of have the way they all draw on the same influences, like Kubrick and the Beatles and um, all of them. They, they all seem to keep putting these same motifs into their work. Um, I mean, like, even the Paul's dead myth seems to be woven in there. I mean, first of all, um, the legend states that he was replaced by a man named Campbell. And you've got this whole Don and Dick uh, dynamic with Campbell. They're always, you know, competing and um, tangled up with each other. Yeah, I don't know. It it, it would take a whole other show to go over all these things, but um, I don't know. That was the first obvious one.
5: We've talked about the Pete and Don connection a bunch here, but do you think it's interesting how they how their stories wind up, like where, like Pete Campbell, he definitely, you know, wins the fifties.
3: Yeah, he got the fairy story ending.
5: Yeah, he gets his wife and his kid back. He's now the the executive of a plane of Lear jets, which remember his dad died in a plane crash. A plane crash. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he, like, he gets the happy, you know, he, he really does get the 1950s happy ending. And Don Draper gets the 70s,
6: right? And Pete Campbell dies in Manhattan on
4: 9-11-2001. Right. That... There you go. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
6: see,
3: I, mean, two, I see. That's the show that I see.
6: I'm not leaving. I'm going to die here right in Manhattan. And there's a whole, like, 9-11 sync uh, web around him during that show. Um, you know, he never grieves for the child that he uh, made with Peggy, who he'll never see. He's completely forgotten it, or he's stuffed it so far back in his brain that that's why he wants to get his wife and child back so much, because he knows that he's abandoned uh, his own child. And uh, so he thinks that he's going to be, you know, it's Lear, Learcat, it's King Lear, right? He goes blind. He thinks that he's successful. Until he slams into that fucking plane in Manhattan when he's, what, like 70? Well, that's just my, whatever.
5: That's really interesting. That's the kind of conversation, that's the kind of stuff this conversation was built for. It was
4: built to be demolished. (laughs) Well, you just look at where are these people going to
6: be in 30 years. The places that we leave them, are they as pure or as happy or are they they superficial? We see Don blissed out in a zen state, you know what I mean? And then, you know, it's assumed that he created that Coke commercial. Wiener tells us he created that Coke commercial, but there's some doubt when we first see it. And I think what that doubt does is allows you to at least examine the Coke commercial itself. Um, You know, cocaine makes its first appearance in that last episode. He yeah, something very specific about cocaine in that episode. I know, I mean, I, the totally, Scarlet,
4: yeah. Joan made the that Scarlet
6: means. woman, who was the whore Babylon, who allowed herself to be stuffed to become a partner in the game, right? Um, it, she said it, it feels like good news, right? Good news, you know, is the gospel. The gospel is the symbolic, uh, uh, with, like, good news of the, the Logos, you know? It's the Holy
4: Spirit, so... Uh, logos, you know, I believe. It,
6: they're into this synthetic yeah. gospel that is money and cocaine and selling Coca-Cola with these uh, hippie politics attached to it. It's it's all bullshit, you know.
5: And um, then of course, Peggy's last conversation with Don, where she says, "Don't you want to work on Coke?"
6: Mm-hmm. Which Boom, is like, right?
5: like yeah, come back. It's the seventies. We're all right. going to work on Coke. Right. We're riding that train, Don.
4: Uh, that doesn't feel like a mistake. I mean, I had that thought. Oh. Sounds like you had that thought. I think a lot of us had that thought because you're looking at this transition. What is one of the key markers, you know, as like when I look at like a lot of culture, you know, like especially subculture shit, you know, that's. Uh, it seems like I always ask myself like what the drug is like with music. It's like, Oh, well what's the drug that I'm listening to? You know, like I don't take enough uh, fucking ketamine and GHB to get into what these kids are into nowadays with their fucking Zima and their roller skates and whatever. (laughs) You know, I can't, I don't, I just, I can't relate to it, but like there's, there's something to be said for that. Like advertising goes beyond um, uh, products that people literally buy in a store Uh, advertising is happening on on all levels, I mean that is public relations, like public relations is what popularized cocaine it wasn't just cocaine working by itself it was this whole push and this whole image and this whole everything and how could you get people to give up such an expansive reality that they were coming out of and like embrace this whole ego drug, you know I mean I guess that's, I don't know, maybe that just comes with the nature of the thing to some degree but it seems like that's like a huge part of what was happening there and what was being communicated. I don't know. Is the well, social engineering
3: com- co- So the social engineering comment, is that, is that saying it's a comment on the social en- engineering aspect of advertising? Or is it, is it a comment that says this show is socially engineering the next?
6: It's Jim Jones. It's drink the Kool-Aid, drink the Coca-Cola. Hmm. Everyone fall down at once. Um, Yeah, it's It's, social engineering. It's redesigning the death wish, right? The death wish used to be the cigarette, you know what I mean? But they can't tell people the reason why you like this is because you want to die, right? Uh, And then people get hit to that, and then they just redesign uh, the selling points, and they just sell the death death wish right back to you. Um, I think people get addicted to the death of the ego. They just keep killing their ego over and over, but, you know, there's no dissolution like that thing you're talking about, like... Uh, it's just um, – it's a holding pattern. It's um, every opening of every madman he falls off the building over and over again, you know, his yep. shadow. Um, it's, it seems so explicit. Um,
3: so then do we roll in Mark Claire and open up the Vallas Loop conversation?
6: Well, it's right there. It's the uh, – you know, I've got a case of the Mondays. What does that mean? It's the same day over and over and over again. Um, hump day, you know, every day I have this –
4: cliched arc We said breakfast of champions now we got goodbye blue monday
5: well there's I mean there's this this phrase this term that comes out of the kind of practices and teachings that were propagated at esalen which uh, goes that today's breakthrough is tomorrow's ego trip mm-hmm, I mean I good. think that's I think that's kind of the idea that I mean Don Draper he does grow he is not as you know blind to himself he gets to know himself better over the course of the series he just doesn't have the fake enlightened epiphany that we're supposed to get he doesn't get to walk off in the sunset instead he walks back into the office ready to kill again you know on it like he's had his breakthrough it's going to become a a cocaine fueled ego trip and then who knows what the you know he's just going to like you say he's going to keep spiraling he's going to keep doing what he does and i mean
4: they show that they let the wheat and the shaft grow together you know and then they're separated at the end i mean to some i mean that yeah You guys see the prodigal son in this story to the maximum. It's very religious. Like even you know, at that certain point when he goes in the ocean, you know, when he's getting his identity coming to terms, like it's like this baptism. There's such this religious aspect to the whole show. I mean, you guys see that, right?
5: (laughs) But I think I think that what they do really wonderfully is that, and I think that uh, I think maybe it was Patrick who was saying this: the, the soap opera aspect of it. See, they're so deft at representing, you know, casting great characters, building great characters that are all fictional and all are all have all of their dramas are made up, and we are so engaged in them, and yet to put it in this backdrop of all the stuff that we're talking about and picking up on, whether it's if you know about history, you're going to get more out of this show because of knowing about history. If you know about religious, uh, the religious architecture of, you know, of consciousness, then yeah, we're going to throw some of that in there too. And putting a tarot card at the end is explicit.
4: Not just the tarot card. He put the tarot card that's literally the conscious mind. So you have race right front of the head. So opposite the moon. And so it's not subconscious. So it's as if, um, you know, basically it's encouraging the individual, to uh, make the unconscious conscious, so to speak. Not that you can ultimately do that. I mean, the subconscious remains the subconscious. But in terms of, like, understanding symbols and how they relate to the archetypes, that's the meaning of that card. Like, of all the cards in the deck, that's, like, you know, come to understand, you know.
5: I want to throw another thing out here. I'm just looking at the IMDb, the Wikipedia page, and they're saying that as of 2003 seven of the nine writers on no, as of it's not 2003 as of its third season as of its third season uh, seven of the nine writers on the show were women and part of the thing about making a TV show like Matthew Weiner it's his show and he runs it and he created the architecture of it but he then went out and just if he like just the way he cast the best actors to bring other things you know, John Hamm kind of has to be Don Draper. I mean, he, that's hmm. a that's a that's some genius of casting because he was you know he was a guy who was doing walk ons he you know he did a he did a a one line or a, you know one bit scene in Fear and Loathing of Las Vegas in Las Vegas he uh, he's the gay uh, oh that's fucking
4: hotel. him no way yeah. he's the, the, oh god the hotel
5: yeah guy. the guy. Yes, that's the, that's. Oh my god, dude! That's, really? So, that's so. John Hamm is walking around being that guy, and Matthew Weiner sees him, and you know it's really interesting. He goes, he, you know, he's an he's an unknown actor. He's playing the lead in the second or third season. He's the produ- He's one of the producers of the show, and that's a sign of like he went from being nobody to being not just a star but iconic and a star really overnight. And that's you know that's brilliant casting. And I guess my point that I want to say is that you if you do that if you do that meticulously with your actors, you're also going to do that with your writers. And I would be very interested to know like like we're talking about all this this the stuff that's built around the back of it this uh, the sacred architecture, the history that he's the people he's hiring. He's getting people who have that expertise to fill that in with and for him. Right. Because it's this something this big can't just come out of the mind of one person. It's yeah. someone who built that team. So I don't know. Th- I don't have that information here, but I'd be really curious to know who the who the who was in that writer's room, who the mm-hmm. women were. Because sure. it's such a well-written show and it's so smart. Um, you got to think. You know I know that Lynn Shelton directed an episode of it and she's a director out of Seattle who's made a bit of a name for herself um and she's someone to keep an eye on. I don't know this is I guess this is the these are the sinks that I'm I'm really curious about are like who are the people who are creating these imagined... like it's, it's an entirely imaginary world they created. Mhm. Entirely. It feels because of the well I I guess yes it's not a science fiction world but it's just like if you wrote a story about a love story in during the revolutionary war
6: the figure and ground of this this production the figure is entirely imaginary the storyline but the ground the reason why it's successful is that you know you can't control the imaginary but you can control the ground they make every single detail every interior shot as precise as possible the, uh, the clothing, the styles, the way the language of every room is put together is so precise that uh, it, it mirrors the ground that these imagined characters really would uh, live in. So you have this really strict local dimension in the ground, and then you get free to fly into the non-local, into the stinky stuff with the figure. But, I mean, half of, 90% of the work of that show was the ground. Like, that achievement is so insane. It's, like, we could write Mad Men, but we could not produce one 10-minute stretch of the way that that thing is put together physically, uh, stylistically, yeah. and the magic of that part of the production, I think, gets lost more than anything.
4: Man, when fucking right. Don Draper and Peggy finally have that night where it's, like, the two of them, and they get all... You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. There's like the night. That was the my favorite episode, just all esotericism side, whatever, but like on its own terms, like as a good writing, like getting character development and then getting it to that point where you could actually feel you're like, Finally, they're fucking like growing out. And there's this whole thing. But like it's interesting because I, I was reading recently in the uh, Zohar with my teacher where it was explaining that the relationship between Za'er and the Shakina is one of brother and sister, which is like why they never actually like, I mean, in the world that is to come, yes, these two things meet, but it was expressing how the, the appeal of the Klipo is a whole other thing because they don't, they're, they're, it's like a brotherly, sisterly love that they can't make into a relationship because it's like uh, doesn't necessarily feel right. It's kind of a weird thing to be describing in terms of that, but like I looked at Peggy and I was like, well if there's a shahina on the show, it's her and Don is ultimately that, but that's the, but his Don is draped, he's making a beast of himself. It's like he who makes a beast of himself rids the pain of being a man at the beginning of Fear and Loathing, you know, that's kind of convenient. I was thinking about that earlier in the conversation when this was 42 minutes uh literally that line of he who makes a beast of himself rids the pain of being a man in relationship to don draper relating him to the beast hence you know the sun at the end of every uh episode and that kind of i'm like this is all babylon the basis for babylon is the babylonian sun square he's like the basis for babylon as far as Mad Men is concerned and so i was like oh but he isn't that he's like purging himself of the clothodic layers, which is literally like his father's dick being boiled in pig fat. So like, I, you guys get where I'm kind of going with this? Yeah. And I want to know the balance of that.
6: So he who becomes a beast, uh, gets rid of the pain of being a man. What about she who becomes a scarlet woman? Right. Well, she, she, does she take on the pain of the world?
4: I think she is bringing something else to it. It's like the only, like it's not, it's about what she's,
6: it's the black swan, right? I don't it's think it's as it.
4: simple as the thing. I think it's, like, both at once or something. It's like she's, you know how, like, in alchemy, you separate, you coagulate, and you reunite? Like, there's, like, this whole thing that's, like, this transmutation process that I see throughout the um, throughout the episodes. And, like, that's why I see the symbolism of moving through the whole 78 tarot deck. You know, you have 78 episodes, and then you have two sets of 7 and 7, which equals 14, which is temperance, which is fucking the peg with sawmac? SawMek is the peg, is Peggy, is the fucking, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's. I mean, for me, that was just immediate. I was like, 7, 7, 14, temperance, 7, 7, strength, Oz, Oz create, like, Emerald City, New York, the whole, like, it was just, dun, 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 dun. as far as synchromisticism is concerned, this show is off the fucking the charts. Ball-
6: you do a little dance on the couch and that's like hitting your brain
4: <laughs> it's basically just like Risky Business I like come into the room, I'm holding a pickle <laughs> I <don't know. clears
5: throat> that's hey, funny you guys- that you that's funny that you would say you would reference Risky Business though because that in another way was a bit of cinema that signaled a major shift in a lot of in a lot of things and it was thematically you know uh, joel from that the tom cruise character from that is on the track to becoming don draper
4: oh totally he He's should stop there though tom cruise should well, have stopped the risky business
5: well, see, that's just the, then you're, just getting, you're just getting into actor hate, which is just, you know... that's.
4: I'm joking, I don't love,
5: hate... No, i love to have the Tom Cruise conversation, because as an actor, you, you put up all of his best stuff against, you know, over time, I mean, the guy's a whack job, but then that, that only makes me think he's more of an artist. Like, if he was as normal as Tom Hanks, like, I'll put my Tom Cruise up against Tom Hanks any day on anything but likability.
4: Hey, they probably uh, put each other up against themselves.
5: Well, let's hope. Let's hope. That's how we get. That's how we get beautiful things like Colin Hanks, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and Mr.
5: Cruise.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you asked Me, he was Tom Cruise in for a bruising. All but right, I'm,
5: people should. Say, I mean, if if you like Mad Men, think about checking out Risky Business because it is about a guy who wants. You know. Oh sure. Who sell becomes a pimp as a classic, you know, as a heroic eighty beginning of the eighties kind of move. And also the kind the way that movie is shot is you know, is if you look at the way that other films of that time period were shot, Risky Business was actually shot a lot more like an ad than it you know, before Ridley Scott was really getting into that kind of stuff. And or Tony Scott before the Scott brothers and and risky
4: business. That was a Coca-Cola advertisement, was it not?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well let's so this is what's interesting to me, this idea of advertising and we need something to believe in. And so does that mean the human condition is emptiness? And then that speaks to consumption versus nourishment? And I Mm -hmm. think ending at Esalen plays with that a little bit. But then – so it's funny because Mad Men has kind of been the the subtext to a lot of – as I hear various conversations, so like Alan's conversation with Jason Horsley on the Liminalist, I took some notes after that. And then when Will and Bill spoke, same thing. And like the the underpinning is this idea of empire. So yes. Will, Will and Bill are shitting on their, their thrones – But the reason why they do that is because we're – we're – you know, our thrones are located on the Death Star. We're at the pinnacle.
4: The goddamn X-Wing has crashed into the Death Star. Nothing is fucked. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
3: So it just – I wonder about – I just wonder about – so like as, you know, yeah, Luke Skywalker – you know, Philip K. Dick, let's let's blow up the Black Iron Prison. Is that possible?
5: Well, if you think about it, I mean, if you're talking about Esalen and you're talking about, I mean, all of these myths, uh, whether it's, you know, Star Wars, Joseph K. Like, when Don Draper has his awakening moment, none of that's happened. Like, think about, I mean, again, I'm just going to sink on the Cruise thing again for a second. The Scientology comes out of Esalen, you know, comes out of whether, you know, out of that soup. And I don't you know, know
6: about that necessarily.
5: That Scientology, that L. Ron Hubbard was, I mean, that, that crowd of. It's, it's true, actually.
6: L. Ron Hubbard and Esalen are in bed together.
5: Well, yeah, the whole idea, I mean. Cause, I mean,
6: that guy who was teaching the little session was modeled on Alan Watts. And that's, there's pretty far distance between those two camps. The,
4: well, let's to be clear, Esalen is a not, is a huge hub for a lot of different people. Everybody, Al Gore went to fucking Esalen, all right. Reagan, I think, yeah. went to Esalen. It's it's not like you know, it's it was a um a, a think tank and a movement. It's like a whole pot, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's it's well, a we're actually gonna.
3: I mean, so one of the things that happened. Where happens regularly is we'll have somebody on 42 Minutes and then you only have that moment to prepare for the show and when the moment's gone, you're done because you have to start working on the next show. And so I really regret not finishing that book by Kripel about Esalen because there is so much in it. It's a huge book. And there's just, you know, the characters that go through that place are incredible. Uh, Burrows, you know, just every anyone interesting manson all kinds of all kinds of crazy stuff and so i definitely like it's funny the crowley stuff does not interest me at all but there's something uniquely american that was brewed up in in california for some reason like
4: so uh, A- amy and i have gone to Esalen. We when we go we go in the middle of the night um i actually have friends that work there which i haven't been taking advantage of um even though I probably could, but I'm not saying it's just a brag, this is reality. But if you guys, have you, have any of you ever been to Esalen? No. So, there's I,
5: a- was, uh, my, uh, I was there in 1967 in my mother's womb. There's a oh, whole really? story about about Fritz Perls trying to get my mom and another woman to have a, to like actually have a physical fight. Oh. Because of, you know, like, it was sort of like, it was the, it was a very it was very much out of that sort of encounter group kind of thing like okay if there's is there a vibe here is there some antagonism well I want you to engage that what does that feel like you know
4: that right right thing. right well that was the thing it's like and even in Century of the Century itself when they go to Esalen, you can see when they tried to. Uh, have yeah. like a uh nonviolent communication between blacks and whites. But they were like, we're just going to come out and just say, you know, the stereotypes and all the bullshit and just, you know, yeah. just let it. And then it's like complete failure, total meltdown, yeah. you know. Um But yeah, anyways, there's, there's like these cliffs there, man. And there's these tubs that you can, you can hang out in these mineral tubs and watch the fucking oh, you're like on the ocean, like you see, like if you go there on a full moon, man, that is the most epic, fucking beautiful sight. It's it's nuts, and you just there's all of these tubs, and you can just sit in these tubs on a cliffside. It's the fucking coolest shit ever. Um, but I don't know what that has to do synchronicity wise with much necessarily. But.
5: Well, I think that I think it has to to do with the idea that like this is like we get this idea that esalen because mk ultra touches on esalen then everything esalen is mk ultra Hmm. and that's like saying you know because mk ultra touched on acid then everything acid is is mk ultra it's like there are there there uh, are hubs where all this
6: on the cliff what do you think of i think of that drug cialis right
3: <laughs> see, yeah. see, on the see, cliff.
6: It's a boner pill. Like Esalen <laughs> sells boner pills. It's a it's a pharmaceutical well, new age factory.
4: I've no. never well, taken a boner pill, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> I took the boner Did you take the red Boner pill and the blue boner
6: pill. <laughs> but, you know, you find your, he found his dick there with this. Um, well, no, but yeah, you're, you're he speaking went down in the rabbit hole of a, a blue right. pill matrix.
5: You know? Yes, you're speaking, of, and that is what what Mad Men is saying. But again, confusing the the made up story there with the you know but with the, the, is the thing
6: that affects me. The real place does have no connection to me. But the myth that it created is something that has had an effect on me. So I should really speak of it in terms of Mad Men more than the reality. Right.
3: My favorite Esalen Sink is that on November twenty second, 1963, JFK is assassinated, Aldous Huxley dies, and there's an earthquake at Esalen.
4: Oh, and the Beatles re- release I mean, the Beatles, right, Patrick? Yeah. Yeah so wait a minute is that on November 22nd because I looked that up and it seemed like it was two days off or something um,
7: yeah it's on the 22nd in on the, 22nd. the UK in the UK
4: thank you sir but it is their first American record which came out in America within a few days of when it came out in the UK
5: release date January 20th
4: 1964 in America Beatles. in America what, how does this work
5: That says 64, though.
4: No, it came out.
5: January 20th. Yeah, 19th I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now.
4: Right, but there's some confusion. It released
5: its first U.S. Beatles album to be issued on January 20th. It was in... I don't know. English. They usually say... Release date, January 20th. Anyway, uh... The first three tracks... So the oh. White
4: Album came out on on uh, uh, January 22nd, uh, five years later, right? Yeah. Just trying to be clear on that. But I could have sworn... So what was the deal, Patrick?
5: Well, they have a song called This Boy that was released in... I saw her standing there in the United Kingdom with This Boy from the original November 1963 release. So maybe they had their first english single released there was a reason
4: why we came to that because i saw it before too and i'm confused as because i looked at the wikipedia too and the wikipedia threw me off but there's something happening there and i don't know what it is i don't know what it is either um can't remember i do know that the first episode of the first season of doctor who came out uh on that day and year november 22nd 1963 which is interesting in terms of the whole time travel aspect, in, in regards to um, Kennedy and tragedy things in general, you know. And
5: Doctor Strangelove was supposed to have its premiere for the press that day.
4: So Doctor Strangelove was supposed to have its premiere for the press on the day that the first episode of the first season of Doctor Who came out. So you got the Doctor Strange and Doctor Who. That's interesting.
6: Does anybody remember what was uh, significant about when Don listened to the album Revolver by
4: the Beatles?
5: Yeah. Patrick? He puts on Tomorrow Never Knows at the end, right? Right. The but, end the but there's
4: a detail to it that's specific. Yeah. Patrick, you got something there, don't you? I couldn't hear what Bill said. <clears throat> he was so asking <throat> about when Don Draper puts the, the Beatles' revolver on at the end of that episode and he takes the needle off. Yeah. That relates to... The, um, the Relax and Float Downstream, The God is Dead from Rosemary's Baby, and The Tibetan Book of the Dead, How? I can't remember. Um, or The Psychedelic Experience by Timothy Leary, or what was it? Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream, this is not dying. but there was something with the date, so, so when that...
7: Oh, they recorded that song, um, I believe the same week that Time released their um, Is God Dead issue.
6: Right. Draper doesn't have a father. He has his entire, uh, you know, uh, dilemma right there on the page. You know, uh, he never met his father. But the weird thing about Revolver is he puts the album on, and everyone who's played the vinyl uh, album Revolver knows that the first song on the stat where you would put the groove down is Not Tomorrow Never Knows. It's the last right. song on Side 2. Right. Oh, but, totally. But... For a guy obsessed with details he puts he show he doesn't he could just simply not let us see draper put the needle on the record right right but he shows you this little twist this little warp in time uh i just think that it's it's a very odd choice it it seems clunky and you say oh that's like a kubrick mistake like um it was a uh continuity error right they didn't catch it no he's in full control of his production, that thing is in there for a reason to make you think a specific way. Right?
3: So what song is he really playing?
4: Right, good Tax question. Man. Really? It's Tax Man. That's right, because Taxman's the first song on Revolver.
5: Well, the first song on the second side. No, the what first... Oh, First song on the second side, what is it? No, the first song on the second side is probably like... I uh, can't remember. Like, not good, Maybe Good Day Sunshine?
4: So you guys know that Revolver was originally going to be called Abracadabra, which is really interesting because Alistair Crowley changed the spelling for Abracadabra to call it Abra-Hadabra, Ab- yeah. which is weird because the actual spelling of Abracadabra is not Abracadabra, but abda because Europeans mistook the Raish. Um, uh, yeah,
0: ob- look, I was right. a dollop
4: for Raish, which is that every Mad Men episode ends with the Raish with the Sun card. Which is, it's just funny because that was the switch in the, in, in Abracadabra. It's, it's abda It's not a race. It's a Dalit. Uh, but then, uh, oh man. And then the Beatles themselves changed the, the, the spelling of the word beetle, you know, to be the beat or whatever, you know? So you have the, the, the scarabs, you know, the scarabs and the rolling stones, uh, the rolling dung balls. But, um, I find that really kind of interesting that there's this whole uh, correlation between the spellings. Like, there's the five Beatles, and then there's, um, Wait, there's uh, like, Beatles? oh, excuse me, four Beatles. Uh, there's two <laughs> poles. but uh,
5: you know, but the, there was
3: the the original was it Stuart Sutcliffe.
5: Well, and then there was Pete Best. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you want to expand, you want to go there's there. a lot of.
4: Yeah, I'm just saying, like, in terms of the symbolism of the Beatles, you have the four, you have, like, the four-letter name, you have uh, Tetragrammaton, right? What makes uh Jesus, you know, Jesus is Tetragrammaton with a shin in the middle, right? So he's, like, the addition. I was just relating this whole thing of, like, why the emphasis on there being five Beatles subliminally over and over and over and over and over again, Uh <clears throat> which is something I didn't realize until Patrick's page really um uh, caught my attention. Um,
5: well, the five Beatles are the Stones, right? I mean, and... and- Don doesn't go to the Beatles, he gets his daughter Beatles tickets, but he goes to the Stones concert.
4: Right, that's right. I know, I've had that whole, yeah, I remember that.
5: And he totally, and he sort of, he ends up just talking to one of the girls who's into them and trying to figure out why she's into them. Like, he's like, what is it? He has this great little, you you know, advertising research moment with...
6: Yeah, that was pretty good.
5: Because he's trying to figure out his daughter, and he's also trying to figure out. You know, it's it's really that's that's a good Don episode. You really see the workings. And by the way, Good Day Sunshine would open the second side of Revolver.
6: Oh, what would you guys consider the major women that Don Draper uh, gets involved with in the show?
5: Well, the like, first there's the Bohemian girl the Bohemian. at the beginning. She was a, amaz- you know, and then there's the waitress. If you thought, if you just think about it in, you know, in terms of like how they're staged, there's the waitress he chases after at the end, and the right. bohemian girl he's with at the beginning.
3: But there was his neighbor that he got all creepy.
5: Oh the yeah, Catholic. that was her.
6: She was a Catholic. She falls in love with the Jew, Jewish, uh, business, the the department store lady. Yeah. yeah. That's like the first one he totally falls head over heels for. It's like I can't believe why, why am I attracted to her? She isn't the uh, you know stereotypical right. picture of beauty. It really throws him, and he redefines his attraction to women. He's he's getting in touch with something that he never had, uh, and I think he first feels it with uh, what's her name, Rachel,
5: who dies at the end. Yeah, yeah, she dies at the end, and then the Maypole teacher that the teacher from the Maypole episode, who's right.
3: It's Now I'm thinking about Rachel and Leah. Is that the story? But we need Jason Pereira.
4: Oh, Rachel and Leah <laughs> uh, from the Bible. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's significant. I can't remember all the specifics around it, though I should. I mean that when she... Oh, <laughs> when that's fatal. There you go. You got your eastern star. F- you know, fatal around the fucking... Those are the two. Okay. Um, in the pentagram. Do you, are you guys not, not know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Never. Um, I just want to mention here that uh, Patrick has uh, put up uh, with the Beatles, came out on November 22nd,
7: 1963.
4: This is their first American album. Is that correct, Patrick?
7: It's their second UK album.
4: Oh, their second UK album. The
7: US version was retitled Meet the Beatles, but in the UK it was with the Beatles, and that's the one that was released on November 22nd.
4: Right, but ultimately this ended up becoming their first American album. It just didn't go by the same title. Mm-hmm. Same fucking album, right, pretty much, or uh
7: yeah, I believe so.
5: Okay. Well A couple four
7: different tunes,
5: I think. Yeah, no, that makes that makes it make all uh, good. I'm so what the fuck was... Seriously. <laughs>
4: November twenty second, nineteen sixty-three with the Beatles. <sighs> the, November twenty second, five years later, the White album.
7: The year JF uh the RFK RFK
4: Mary's baby Oh uh, what the fuck nineteen sixty eight? Nineteen sixty eight uh, White Album. Where did I see uh, that? Freaking November 22nd. You got your fucking... If you, like, that's the thing. You're like, oh, what a happy coincidence that freaking their, their album was released November 22nd, 1963 with the Beatles, which became Meet the Beatles, which was their connection to America, so you have your British invasion. But, like, the fifth year anniversary, if that wasn't a sink wink to the fucking max with the goddamn Beatles, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just... Sorry. Well,
5: and then, and then how much, and then, I mean, bringing it around to Mad Men, because, I mean, I guess we probably refer to other episodes of Always Record where we've discussed Rosemary's White Album, but how much that, you know, when you look, when you listen to the White Album laid up against... Rosemary's Baby, which features, you know, actual players in these, you know, in the story that we're we're talking about, this history that the part what do you call it? The ground? You know, Bill, the, you know, that like yeah, Mia Farrow yeah. and Frank Sinatra and Charles Manson and Roman Polanski and the Beatles and the Maharishi and all of it is all wrapped up in both the White Album and Rosemary's baby and they're oh. actually, they're so inextric- in, inextricably linked by history that the fact that they work, you know, artistically, as David and I have just has, have gassed on a lot, is, you know, that's that's a it is like a weirdly, I don't want to say happy coincidence, but it's back up you know, by an the amazing way, Plus. synchronicity. What dude, you
6: just totally connected that for me, man. Like they share as much of the same ground and they become actually attached. As uh, artistic works that play off of each other.
4: That, yeah, completely. You know, scratch your, your back, you scratch your mind, you know. Yeah, you're going to scratch and my dick I'll scratch yours. He,
5: <laughs> and, and that's what Matthew Weiner w- is is doing when he's tossing all that Rosemary's Baby Manson stuff at us subliminally in the show.
4: Right, Absolutely. which is where R and B really comes from. You know, you want to, it's like that's what R and B is. It's Rosemary's Baby.
6: Now you guys call it Rosemary's White Album. I always call it Rosemary's White Baby because I
4: call it Feast of the Immaculate Conception. But well, that's,
6: you know, it's much better. But you know, <laughs> that baby that's born in Rosemary's Baby is the white baby, right? These are people who are not part of, um, like, they want to have a white baby, a privileged baby. They want to be part of the club. So I just really love the the merger of that title. So, uh, you know, Rosemary's White Baby is.
5: But, uh, <laughs> I don't. The Rosemary's White Album thing. It's like, I feel like it's like a baby album that you open up and all, and it's just like pictures of Vietnam and dead, you know, Bob Kennedy dead on the, you know, on the pavement. Like this is what her. Oh, Rosemary's White Album. Oh, it seems so nice. Ah, you know, like you look at
4: right. it. Right.
5: Oh, it's the. It's the all truth. Right, like ah. <laughs>
4: Especially with Manson at the end. uh, Oh,
5: yeah. Well, that's...
6: This is uh, Andres' point about seven and nine of the writers being women. Do we have seven... Can we identify seven dominant women that uh, Draper is involved with during the show? And does each female writer represent one of those women? Did they create those characters? It would be fascinating to see if that like you said to to get the information of the actual people and see what other work they've done and just do the thing and see how well those connect to the seven uh, dominant female figures you know you could do that I mean, be, it's pretty, it seems pretty simple uh, the seven being you know the first seven Sephiroth, of the tree of life you know the corporeal kind of existence and then there's you know, the whole thing
4: and then number 9 you know what, number 9 number 9 yeah
5: i would be really curious this is another thing to think about is so like thinking about how Don chooses Megan over the woman who was more of his equal, the, the psychologist who's been trying, you know, if he had listened to her, he would have got the Coke commercial four years earlier. Kind of thing. Uh, it, yeah. So there, so like, it's sort of like Peggy, like in a weird way, how he supports and rejects Peggy all the time. Like he's, she's, she's definitely in the terms of the show she's his great love but in terms of what you're talking about he she, she never sets off his mommy meter which makes him go mad right and right. so for every one of these dark mommies that he goes after is there a path untaken like a good like a woman who was his equal who he could have connected with but instead went the other way you know like thinking of the first one of those maybe being dick whitman i mean don draper's real wife don draper's widow who becomes his you know his caretaker the woman who gives him who does his tarot readings she's, she's this bringer of wisdom and he's it doesn't turn him on at all
4: mm-hmm. turn me on dead man i was just thinking that and then you said it doesn't turn him on at all that's funny but turn me on, dead man being the backwards message in, uh, what is it, Patrick? Where does it say turn me on, dead man? number nine, Walrus. Okay. Number nine. I'm the Walrus. I'm the Walrus. Number nine. Number nine.
1: Number
4: nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number
1: nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Thank you for listening to this broadcast from the Syncbook Radio. If you enjoyed this episode, there's so much more content waiting for you at thesyncbook.com. Tune in to our other Syncbook Radio programs, 42 Minutes, Always Record, The Marty Leeds Math Magical Radio Hour, Synchronize, Pentimental, and Sync Quick News. Our newest episodes are always free, and members get access to our full archive of over 600 hours. You'll find all of this, as well as our books and videos, at thesyncbook.com.